thankful for the way that you work in our lives. And years and years ago, the last thing on uh, Jeff and Cheryl's minds was this. But you are a God who works wonderfully, and you are a God who works strangely. And a lot of times in the darkest days of our lives, you have plans for us that we know nothing about. You, you said to some folks in the Old Testament, I know the plans that I have for you. Plans not for calamity, but for your welfare, to give you a future and a hope. And we have guys here tonight that are in a very, very deep and dark chapter of life, wondering if their best days are behind them, wondering if perhaps you have forgotten them. And we are all encouraged by what you've done in this remarkable providence for Jeff and Cheryl. Thank you for healing their marriage. Thanks for all that went on, all the hours, all the difficult conversations, working through things. I'm grateful for Jeff and his teachability and for Cheryl. They, They had real issues, just like every other marriage has real issue. But but they worked them through and they listened to one another and they grew through the difficulty and through the pain. And as a result, now you're expanding their borders and giving them opportunity to minister to other couples that are in grievous situations where there's no trust and where there's no hope. And because, Lord, we've been watching this and and praying about your timing and your direction, this really is a pretty lousy time to be starting a ministry, unless you're in it, and you're obviously in it. Your ways are not our ways. I mean, if we put it out on paper, this would not be the time to launch this, but it's your time. And that's all we need to know. So we are grateful for how you've worked in Jeff's life this week and Cheryl's life. And we're excited about what you're going to do. And the lives are going to be touched. For all of us in here, Lord, may we be encouraged by this answer to prayer. Sometimes we think that you have forgotten about us because we've been waiting for so long but you have not forgotten. No eye has seen a God like thee who works for those who wait for him, Isaiah said. So for the guys in here tonight who are waiting, encourage their hearts by what you've done this week for Jeff. Encourage all of us. We pray as we look into your word tonight in Jesus' name. We ask these things. Amen. Thanks, Jeff. We rejoice with you, man. God bless you. Thanks. Yeah. Well, Texas used to be big in oil. But things have changed a little bit. I was reading a book uh, a few weeks ago called uh, Big Money, and it was about the early Texas wildcatters and the guys who made it big. And it, it was a series of remarkable biographies about these men who had risked everything and uh, who hit it. And their fortunes were completely turned, and they began to live like kings, and quite a remarkable story. And then they died. One of the early oil barons out of Houston was a guy named Jim West. He died in 1957 of diabetes. Uh, If you said Jim West, they may not know who you were talking about. But if you said silver dollar Jim West, they knew who you were talking about. He he was a legendary Texas oil man. They, They called him silver dollar Jim West. And when he died, we don't have his... Really, we don't have his last words. He really didn't write anything out except a will. 
We don't know what his thoughts were, but we do know this. When Silver Dollar Jim West died in 1957, they went into his home in River Oaks. They opened up the vault, and they pulled out 279,000 silver dollars. And it took seven armored Brinks trucks to take those silver dollars out of his mansion. In 2 Timothy, you go, yeah, 2 Timothy. Another one of Paul's letters. And that's true. It's another one of Paul's letters. But the thing that gives 2 Timothy perhaps an edge, the thing that gives 2 Timothy perhaps um, an added dimension of, if you will, significance, is that 2 Timothy contained the last words that the Apostle Paul wrote. He wrote a lot of epistles. So much of our New Testament is from the Apostle Paul. But 2 Timothy is especially of interest because he's facing death. And he is getting ready for a major transition. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, he makes this very, very clear. He, he makes no bones about it as he writes to his young protege, Timothy. He says in 2 Timothy 4, 6, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. He is a prisoner in Rome, in Mamertine Prison. You can visit that prison today. It's still there. He's in this dungeon getting ready to be beheaded by Nero. He doesn't know if it's going to happen that afternoon. He doesn't know if it's going to happen next Tuesday or in three weeks. But he knows it's coming soon. I'm already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Death is imminent. That's always the test of a man. I remember reading years and years ago, years ago, about William Randolph Hearst, the great media baron. It's been said that the movie Citizen Kane was based on his life. Newspapers aren't doing real well right now. But in um, the days of Hearst, they were doing very, very well. In New York alone, there were over 40 daily newspapers in New York City. It was the age of the newspaper, and William Randolph Hearst was the king of the newspaper business. Uh, one of the most powerful men in America. He had this remarkable getaway on the central coast of California called San Simeon, called Hearst Castle. And you can visit it today, and it is well worth the visit. He had uh, men who were full-time that traveled throughout Europe, uh, buying the riches of the European nobility and their castles and their uh, fortresses and and. This place, if you ever get a chance to go, go. It's absolutely breathtaking. Every morning at San Simeon, his newspapers would be brought in, would be flown in from all over the country. But before William Randolph Hearst would go through the newspapers, a secretary would go through every newspaper and omit any reference to death. He could not face up to death the greatest fear of his life. Um, Apostle Paul wasn't like that. He was facing up to it. He was taking it on head on. And as he writes these last words to his, uh, his young associate, Timothy, and as you read this book, you don't get any sense of uh, panic. You don't get any sense of Great anxiety. You don't get any sense of anxiety. You, you have a, a, a sense of a man who is, uh, who is grounded. You have a sense of a man who, 
knows what he believes. You have a sense of a man who, who knows where he's going. You have a sense of a man who had a very unique perspective on life. This was not the first time Paul had been in prison. If you flip over to Philippians, we find Paul once again, earlier in his life, once again, he's in prison. And because he's in prison, here's this most powerful preacher, great theologian, great communicator. All the believers are just worried sick because their, their greatest man, their greatest weapon is in prison. Locked up on the shelf, can't use his gifts for the glory of God. And in Philippians 1, Paul writes to these people to encourage them. Usually you write to someone who's in prison to encourage them. But Paul was such a unique guy, he's in prison and he's writing letters and sending them out to encourage everybody else. He's quite a man. He's got quite a perspective and he's got quite a view on life. And in Philippians 1 verse 12, he says, Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Now that's kind of ironic. Here's this great preacher. Here's this guy that goes into the synagogues and argues with the Jews and proves to them that Jesus is the Son of God. This guy who used to be the great persecutor of the church. And now he's locked up and his voice is, is stilled. And they're worried because he can't get the word out. Yet he says... I want you to know that my circumstances, being in prison, has turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. How in the world can being in prison mean greater progress for the gospel? He says, well, that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. And that most of the, and most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Because Paul's in there, now the other guys have become emboldened. And there's a great benefit. Instead of being timid, they're bold, and they're preaching the gospel. But the first thing he mentioned is, is that he says, my imprisonment has become well-known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard. The Praetorian Guard were the hand-picked bodyguards for Caesar. They were the cream of the cream. These were, these were the guys that had the highest core on the SAT. They were the greatest athletes. These were the very best that the Roman army had to choose from. And these were the guys who were part of that special elite force that were the bodyguards for Caesar. And now that Paul's imprisoned, he is chained to one of those guards for hours and hours a day. Or maybe we should say that the guard is chained to the apostle Paul. I mean, here's a guard, young guy, probably in his 20s or 30s, enjoying his wonderful pagan lifestyle, but he draws this duty every once in a while of being chained for eight hours to this very disturbing little man, I remember Ray Stedman saying, who kept talking about this Jesus Christ who had come out of the tomb. Now, let me ask you something. Those are very strategic men. Much of the Roman Senate were made up of former members of the Praetorian Guard. Because these guys were the elite. Could Paul have walked in there and knocked on the door and said, hey, I'd like to speak at the chapel service for the Praetorian Guard. Oh, we don't have a chapel service. Get out of here. There's no way he was going to reach these men. So what does God do? Well, let's put you in prison and let's get you chained to these guys and you can preach the gospel to them. Doesn't God work strangely? And if you're wondering if God really worked through all this, you go to the end of Philippians and you read verse 22 of chapter 4, and he says, Paul says, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Now, isn't that remarkable? Because he was imprisoned, he's speaking to the Praetorian Guard, to these guys individually, speaks to them of the greatness of Christ, tells them why he's the Son of God, what he did for them on the cross, and one by one, these guys and other members of Caesar's household become believers in Christ. That interesting. See, that's why he had the perspective that he had in 2 Timothy. His, he knew his God, and he knew his God was at work. That's why he's not depressed. That's not why he's not worried. Even though he's getting ready to pass the baton on. It's a generational change. It's a generational shift. This great leader of the church, 
His departure is imminent, and he's going to hand it off. And who's he writing to? He's writing to young Timothy. And and the core message that he has is one that we can never forget. As we do this tonight, uh, I came in here last week with, with 10 points on the first several verses. I got through three of them. Tonight, optimistically, I have four that I didn't get to last week. So I'm going to see if I can get through four tonight. So I want to go ahead and give you, I want to give you four principles about faithful men because Paul was a faithful man and he is getting ready to finish the race. Uh, you know, the Bible uses that metaphor of a race all the time. It talks about the fact that we're in a race. Hebrews uh, 12 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Christian life is a race. And the Christian life is not a short race. The Christian life is not a sprint. The Christian life is a long race. Eugene Peterson wrote a book one time with a great title, and the title was simply, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. That's the Christian life. Now, where is the finish line in the Christian life? The finish line is when you die. Now, that's kind of interesting running a race, because normally when you run a race, you know where the finish line is. But see, in this race, we don't know where the finish line is. Years ago, I did a book called Finishing Strong. And on the cover, the original cover, it was a view looking down from, from the sky, if you would, upon a guy um, rowing in a skull. You've seen these, every once in a while, you'll see on ESPN or something, you'll see the, um, the Ivy League crews racing one another. And they're in those those long, beautifully machined, sleek. Are they not called skulls? And you see those guys rowing just in, I mean, they're like machines. Now, you know what's interesting about those guys? They can't see the finish line. Their back is to the finish line. Is it not? Yeah, it is. It's hard to run a race. It's hard to row a race when you don't know where the finish line is. It's always a lot easier to have it in view or to have it in mind or to know where it is. They can't see the finish line. But there's a guy sitting in the back of that skull called a coxswain. And what do they do? They look at him. What's the coxswain do? They used to have the megaphone. Now he's probably texting them. I don't know what he does, but, you know... (laughs) He's probably got one of those Garth Brook microphones off his head. I don't know what he does, but he's got, used to have the megaphone. And, and what they do is they watch him. They don't look at the finish line. They look at him. And what does he do? He paces them. He encourages them. And they trust him that by obedience to the coxswain, he will get them to the finish line. See, that's what we do. We fix our eyes not on a finish line. We don't know where it is. We fix our eyes on on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. That's what we do. That's how we run this race. Now, you're thinking you've got 10 years. You're thinking you have 20, 30, 40, depending on your age. Obviously, we have absolutely... No guarantees. None. We don't know where the finish line is. But we know we're in a race. Paul was in a race. Let me give you the first characteristic of a faithful man. Faithful men do long-term planning. Flip over with me to Matthew 6. I'll say that again. Faithful men do long-term planning. Matthew... Chapter 6. I'm always interested these days to read the different financial columns. I get Fortune. Is it Fortune? No, I get Forbes. I get Forbes magazine. I, just, just to, I get it just to read it. And in the back of Forbes, they got about three or four columnists. 
Steve Forbes has got a column up front. And then another guy is Rich Carlsgard. He's pretty good. I like him. And, uh, but in the back, they got three or four guys give these one-page columns, and they're giving all this financial advice. And it's been real interesting to read them over the last six, seven, eight months. Because you get a real strong sense, they don't have a clue what they ought to be saying. I mean, everybody's just pretty much in the tank. Everybody's just kind of, what the heck's going on here? I mean, I read a thing today that really what you want to do is just preserve your principle. Oh, okay. And I signed up for your newsletter to, to, to hear that, just preserve my principle. Well, that's actually pretty good wisdom these days, it sounds like. Nothing wrong with long-term planning. In fact, it's good to be a long-term planner. But most men don't plan long enough. Look at Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves silver dollars on earth. Where moth and rust destroy. It doesn't say silver dollars. But it says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Where moth and rust destroy. And where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Is that not true? If you put in the past when you had money and you put it into a certain fund, would you not check it regularly? Yes, you would. Why? Well, because your treasure's there. You want to see how it's doing. Now you don't even want to look because there's not much treasure there. He says in verse verse 22, the eye is the lamp of the body, so then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Wealth is, wealth is tough. Wealth is tricky. W- wealth wants to master our hearts and get our hearts. And, and it happens to so many men. It happens to men who know this verse and who fight against it. We have all struggled with the love of money. All of us. A- and the vast majority of us in here are struggling a little bit with a little bit of depression and a little bit of concern and a little bit of anxiety. Why? Because what we've had is not where it used to be, you see. And if you're, if you're a believer in Christ, this isn't all bad. Because what it does is it recalibrates our long-term focus about what life is about. It... Uh, it's, it's a, it's a wake-up call as to what really is going on in life. In, in 1 Timothy 6, Paul told Timothy, do not fix your hope on the uncertainty of riches. And we know they're uncertain, but we get this mindset, we get to thinking that they're, that they're going to be there. And then when they're not there, we get disappointed. He says, don't fix your hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. So where's our hope supposed to be? On God. I never never fail to marvel. Up up until recent months, when you watch a football game, basically when you watch a football game, they got, generally speaking, two kinds of advertisers. They got the beer commercials, and and then they got the, um, the financial stuff. You know, insurance companies, they got the, you know, investment in Merrill Lynch, you know, they got all these guys. And the big thing, you know, know, for your safe financial future, you know, financial independence. I don't know, you do this, you do this. What a crock. I think it's crockizo in the Greek. What a crock, huh? We're finding out how uncertain all that stuff is, aren't we? Flip over to 1 Timothy 6 with me. You see, and by the way, who's writing 1 Timothy 6? The Apostle Paul. 
You talk about a long-term perspective. Paul says in verse 17, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. That's where our hope is. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. And that's not just when the stock market is at 13000 Have you taken a hit? Have you lost some things? Yeah, you probably have. Well, that doesn't mean you're exempt from verse 19, does it? Actually, it doesn't. It just means it's going to take a little bit more faith. Actually, I meant verse 18. Instruct them to do good, be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Where the stock market is should not really affect too much your attitude on those things. Because, see, when you're generous and when you're ready to share and there's somebody in need, and you give to them, that's the wisest financial move you could ever make in your life. Is it not? Because Jesus himself said, give and it shall be. A little louder. Give it unto you. That's pretty good. Give and it shall be given unto you. Press down, shaken together, running over. Do you know of a better financial principle in all the world than that one? I don't. I don't. It's amazing how riches can grab our hearts. Riches, had, riches did not own Paul. So Paul had a different perspective. And the other thing about financial planning, it's wonderful. Plan for retirement and all this and do this and set things up and all this. But you know what the problem is? You're going to die. You're going you're gonna to die. And see, then the question is, then what the heck are you going to do? I mean, really, somebody help me here. If your financial plan does not include... See, this is why I said... Faithful men do long-term planning. But see, most guys in America don't do long-term planning. What they think is long-term planning, retirement, all this, that's not long-term. That's nothing. Your life is just a breath. You're going to live forever. 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 And we're all going to be in heaven together. Everybody in the whole world. Let's stand and sing, We Are the World. (laughs) We are the children. Well, we're not all going to heaven. According to what Jesus said. So see, you really need to think when you're doing long-term planning. Heaven is offered to us because of the sacrifice of Christ. But it's not for everybody because not everybody wants Christ. Not everybody is willing to admit that they are a sinner. And not everyone is willing to receive the gift. So those of us who have received it, We're not proud about it. We're not arrogant about it. We're just grateful for God's grace in our lives. We know where we're going. Paul knew where he was going. That's why you read 2 Timothy and all this wisdom is just spewing out of this guy. Let me give you a second observation about faithful men. Faithful men have an earthly strategy. While you're on the earth which is a relatively short period of time, you've got a strategy as to how you ought to live your life and how you ought to spend your time. And this is what Paul is conveying to to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. This is so simple, yet it's absolutely brilliant. 2 Timothy 2, 2. Many of you guys know this by heart. The things which you have heard from me Who is Paul? Paul's a faithful man. He's an apostle. The things you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, Timothy, 
entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. It's so simple, we miss it. Christ has worked in my life. Christ worked miraculously in Paul's life. We did a little bit of a survey last week of how it was that God reached down and grabbed Paul, who used to be named Saul, who was the great hater of Christianity, who was the great killer of Christians, who held the coat of Stephen while he was being martyred, who would go around breathing threats, and on his way to Damascus, the Lord Jesus appears to him and said, you're mine. Come here. The Lord Jesus didn't ask him how he felt about it. He didn't say, you okay with this? He said, come on, you're mine, let's go. And Paul was amazed. Paul was staggered by what God did in his life. And so now here's the great hater of the church who is the great preacher of the church. He's an apostle. He's a sent out one by Christ, hand chosen by Christ. He he never got over that. So this man who became a faithful man and who was tried. Oh, by the way, how do you become a faithful man? How do you become faithful? Well, you know what? You kind of get the crud kicked out of you. And you just keep hanging in there. That's how you become a faithful man. Anybody can be faithful when it's easy. Did you know that? You, you, you know, how many of you guys are married? Let me see your hands. Okay. You remember those marriage vows? I mean, some of you guys are old. <laughs> but you remember those marriage vows? Kind of went for I, uh, Charlie, take the, you know, Margaret, my lawfully wedded wife, for better or worse, richer. Or poor, sickness and health. Till what? Till death do us part. Is it not true that anybody can be committed when it's better? You got better or worse than those vows. You remember that? When it's better, is anybody thinking about cutting out? When it's better, is anybody thinking about leaving? No. But the problem is it can get worse. That's when you start thinking about leaving. Better or worse, richer, richer's no problem. Everybody's good when it's richer. But the problem is there's this thing called poor. And you don't have the disposable income, and you don't, you don't have the income, quite frankly. Forget disposable. I mean, you're just, you don't have the money you used to have. And so that brings great pressure, and it brings great stress. And women love financial Security. Security. They love it. They love it. And when it's not there, it gets very, very stressful. Does it not? Anybody can be committed when it's richer. Better or worse, richer or poor. Sickness and in health. Hey, you're healthy, I'm healthy, we're good. But then somebody gets sick. <coughs> Excuse me. Or somebody gets depressed and can't pull out of it. That's tough. That's tough. How many of you guys have been married 30 years or more? Let me see your hands. That's great. How many of you guys have been married 40 years or more? How many of you guys have been married 50 years or more? Uh, you guys, would you guys stand for a minute? Would you mind? Could I ask you to stand? If you married 50 years or more, no, don't, hold on, 50 years. If, stand, if you can stand, stand, guys. Okay, now wait a minute, hold on. That's great. So I want to see, hey guys, just keep standing for a minute, okay? Jim, how long have you been married? 53. 53, sir? 53. 53. 58. 58. Dave, whoa, way to go. <laughs> sir? 50. Excellent. Roger? 50. 57. That's all right. You're with the Lord and you still love her, don't you? I'm glad you stood. That's great, sir. How long has she been gone? That's tough, isn't it? You, you obviously had a great love for her. Yeah, yeah. Well, you honor her by standing. How about you, sir? How long? 58, 58 years. 
See, I'm 59 years old. <laughs> I know I look like I'm 80, but I'm 59. 51? 52? 63. Okay, that's great. Now, you, you know why, you guys may be seated. You, you know why I had these gentlemen stand? Because they are, what kind of men? Faithful. And if we gave these guys 10 minutes and they could just give you an overview of their marriage, you would find out that they've all had, I mean, I mean, honestly, to be married that long, they've had a pretty easy ride. Why else would they be married that long? Huh? It's gone pretty well for these guys. They drew the best cards. Not a lot of difficulty, not a lot of hardship, not a lot of pain. You and your wife obviously just get along. You just mesh, you see eye to eye. Yeah. That, that too is a crock. Is it not? Yeah. These guys have been through all kinds of stuff. Ups, down, good, bad. That's just life. But they've been faithful. They've been faithful. How do you get faithful? How do you get to be faithful? You just keep showing up and following Christ and being obedient and keeping your vows. That's what Paul did. You read Paul in 2 Corinthians. You read the stuff that guy went through. The suffering he went through. The, the, the discouragement. Flip over to 2 Corinthians. Yeah, this, this, guy, this guy had a hard life. 2 Corinthians 1.8. We do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia when we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life itself. That's a remarkable passage. Paul said, I don't want you to forget that I was afflicted in Asia. It was so bad that I was burdened excessively. Have you ever been burdened excessively? Be, he says, beyond our strength. Have you ever heard the little phrase, God will never give you more than you can handle? Have you ever heard that? As I read this, it appears to me God gave him more than he could handle. Because it says, we were burdened excessively beyond our strength. Oh, but here's the thing. When you get beyond your strength, you know what God does? He gives you more strength. That's what God does. But it was such an excessive burden... And Paul was so beat down, <coughs> excuse me, and he was so discouraged. He said, we despaired even of life itself. That's how beat up this guy got. He, just, he, he was just tired of living. He was just flat out fatigued. He, he was just tired of fighting the battle. So what did he do? Well, he went to bed that night. And he got up the next morning, and you know what he did? He showed up and punched in and went to work again. That's what faithful men do. They keep showing up. They keep punching in. They don't bolt. They don't quit. They don't run because their needs aren't being met And there are a lot of guys in here whose needs aren't being met. But when was that ever an excuse to leave? If your needs aren't being met, that's worse. Is it not? That's a terrible thing to have your needs not being met. Wife didn't even know your needs. Not everybody in here has that, but some guys have wives that are totally clueless to your needs. That's horrific. But as I read the Word of God, that is no reason to bolt. Is it? Who knows? God may do something miraculous and heal her in her emotions, in her spirit, and might change her. Who knows? Who knows? 
And you would pray for that, and you would ask, hey, let me tell you something. Jeff and Cheryl, that marriage was dead as a doornail. And now what did Jeff and Cheryl do? They got groups meeting all over, all week long. Jeff's only meeting with guys, and Cheryl's meeting with girls. But they got groups with couples. And you know why they're meeting with these couples? Because these couples are where they were years ago. But what did the Lord do? He resurrected them. Ray Stedman used to say that resurrection, how did he used to say that? Ray used to say that resurrection power always works best in a graveyard. <laughs> Isn't that good? You think you're dead. You think it's done. You think it's, you, there is absolutely no hope. You don't know that. You don't know that. That's where it is today. That doesn't mean it's going to be that way Always. Not necessarily. It could. It could. But God has the power. Does he not? I don't know how I got off on that. For several minutes, I've been looking down here at number two and trying to figure out how I got onto that. And you know what? I just remembered how I got onto it. Faithful is the word. Faithful men have an earthly strategy. What's the strategy? Well, first of all, to be a faithful man, you've got to be faithful. Right? It was, I believe it was Peter Drucker that was speaking in an ethics class at a university to a group of MBA students. And he was talking to them he was talking to them about the importance of integrity. And one of the students raised their hand and said, Mr. Drucker, how does one, how, how does one earn trust? And Drucker looked at him and said, try being trustworthy. I mean, it's not real complicated, is it? You want to be trusted? Well, then be trustworthy. They give you a trust, handle the trust. Paul was a faithful man. Why was he a faithful man? Because he had suffered. And he kept punching in. He kept punching. And so that's what we do in our marriage. We just keep punching in. Because you see, because you see, life is hard and life is difficult, whether you're single or whether you're married or whatever the heck you are. Life is hard, life is difficult, and as Christians we suffer. We have not only been given, granted, to believe in Christ, that we've been given that gift, but we've also been given the gift of suffering for his sake. So, to be a faithful man, here's what your life is all about. Paul says in, in, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, he says, Timothy, the things you've learned from me, in other words, Paul's a faithful man, the things you've learned from me, and who's he talking to? Timothy, a young faithful man, the things that you have learned from me, entrust these things to faithful men that they may be able to teach others also. This is how truth is transferred down through the generations. It's God's strategy. Uh, you, you know, the, the, the Church of Jesus Christ and all these denominations, they got all these deals and all this and all this, and, you know, we're doing this and this. That's all great. That's fine. But really what it boils down to is, is a man taking a younger man and teaching him, and then that younger man then taking another younger guy and teaching him, and then another younger guy then teaching, and it just, see, that's how it goes. Robert Coleman wrote a book years and years ago called The Master Plan of Evangelism. It's called Discipleship. It's what Jesus did with the 12. It's what we're supposed to do. Um, th this boy was going nowhere fast, and his, uh, he was not doing well in school. He was not motivated. His, he lived back uh, in the early 1800s uh, in a very wealthy home, and his father had spoiled him and given him too much. Most boys did not have that kind of upbringing. But he'd been given way too much. He'd, been, he'd gone to the best schools. He'd flunked out of the best schools. He was 17 years old. 
He was wasting his life. He did not know what he wanted to do. He had no direction. And his father had a friend who was a congressman. And his father went to the congressman and arranged for his son to receive an appointment to West Point. And the appointment came through. When he came home and told his son, his son was livid because he did not want to go to West Point. But his father, you remember hearing about the swift boats? Well, his father had a swift boot. (laughs) And his father swiftly booted him out of the house at the age of 17 and said, you're going to West Point. And he did not want to go, but his father, his father knew he'd spoiled him. His father knew that he had pampered him. His father knew that he had given him way too much, and he had to turn this kid into a man. So at 17, he boots him out of the house and says, you're going to West Point. When he returned home for the first time, the family was shocked at the transformation. He had become a man, a confident young man. A young man with an internal sense of destiny and a gyroscope of direction that had not been there before he had left home. And he had met a young lady whom he would soon marry and love all the days of his life. His nickname used to be Useless because he was such a sluggard. But nobody was calling him Useless anymore. Now they were calling him by his real name, which was Ulysses. Ulysses... S. Grant, who one day became President of the United States and a great war hero. Now, Grant always had his demons to fight, if you know anything about him, as all men have their demons to fight. One historian wrote about uh, Grant. He wrote these words, the Civil War made Grant. But in actuality, it was not the Civil War that made Grant It was West Point that made Grant. Actually, it was a father who made a boy do what he didn't want to do and go to a school he didn't want to attend. That's what made Grant. Uh, One biographer said, The harsh plebe summer, the rigid discipline, the spit and polish, the painstaking attention to detail made all the difference in his son who was on the brink of disaster. At the critical moment, in spite of his past lapses and shortcomings as a father, he took the tough step and did what needed to be done. In doing so, he saved his 17-year-old son from a wasted life. The father had been unfaithful to his boy. He had to get faithful in order to turn his son into a faithful man. See, there's a principle. Faithful men teach young men who in turn become faithful men who in turn... It's all down the generations. Let me give you a third observation about faithful men. This is right out of Paul's life. This is, this, this is uh, to me, a, a very important truth, this truth of, of, of faithful men. Paul could not have given that strategy. See, that was Paul's earthly strategy. Why he was on the earth. You know, at the end of Paul's letters, he's always writing, hey, say hi to, uh, you know, say hi to Joe, Bob. Say hi to, you know, Bubba. Say hi to, uh, you know, Freddie and his wife, you know, Mildred, who run the uh, barbecue place down there in, uh, you know, Caesarea Philippi. He's always talking about individuals. Why? Because he had people that he was entrusting himself to. Those were the faithful guys, and the same thing applied to them that applied to Timothy. He had individuals in his life. That was the name. He just wasn't preaching to the, to the masses. He was working one-on-one with some individuals. They were very important. People were important to Paul. That was the earthly strategy. So number three, here's another little glimpse into a faithful man. Faithful men pursue a clear conscience. It's easy to just pass right over this one. Back in 2 Timothy, the opening verses, let me give you that one again. Faithful men pursue a clear conscience. He says in verse three, I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience. You know, Paul was big on conscience. If you flip over to 1 Timothy, the opening verses of 1 Timothy, he says in verse 5, but the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience. Uh, We're talking here tonight about faithful men. We're not talking about perfect men. 
There's no perfection until you go to heaven. So we, fall, we sin and we fall short of the glory of God. If you know the road through Romans, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And not only do we sin before we come to know Christ, but after we come to know Christ, we still sin because the sin nature has not been eradicated. We're not mastered. We're not dominated by sin. We have a new life and we have a new nature, but we still have that, that sin. We still have that crud hanging around in us. That virus is still in our lives. And so as a result of that, sometimes we don't do what we believe. Sometimes we don't do what we think we ought to do. That's why you've got Romans 7. You guys don't mind turning these passages, do you? How many of you guys brought a Bible? I'm just curious. Did you bring a Bible? You don't mind turning pages in the Bible, do you? It's a good thing to do. So uh, let's see. In Romans chapter 7, I love Romans 7. You know why I love Romans 7? It gives me hope. Because in Romans 7... I, I mean, I'd like to read the whole thing. But beginning with 14, you got the conflict of the two natures. Paul says in 15, what I am doing, I do not understand. For I'm not practicing what I would like to do. But I'm doing the very thing I hate. You ever feel that way? Sure you do. Aren't you glad Paul said this under inspiration of the Holy Spirit? Paul had the same struggle that you have. 16, if I do the very thing I don't want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I'm doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find in the principle that evil is present in me, and it will be present in us until we go to heaven. So we're fighting this battle, are we not? So how, hey, somebody tell me if you're fighting that battle, how in the world do you ever have a clear conscience? Because you're never free from sin. How in the world do you find a clear conscience? Martin Luther King Jr. That means his father was Martin Luther King Sr. You see, I took a course in logic when I was in college. So you got Martin Luther King Jr., and then you got Martin Luther King Sr. Now, who was the father of Martin Luther King Sr.? I don't know. But I know this about the man. Either a slave or a former slave, who was fortunate by the grace of God to be taught how to read, and once he was given the gift of reading, he read because he knew theology. And I'll tell you what else he knew. He knew history because there's no other reason in the world that he would have named his son Martin Luther King. And then his son would then name in turn his son Martin Luther King Jr. Why would a slave in the United States of America name his son after some German dude they didn't say dude back then, but after some German guy who lived 300 years before because he understood the principle of Martin Luther's life and he understood that Martin Luther was significantly used by God. Martin Luther was plagued all of his life by a guilty conscience. He could not find forgiveness in Christ. He was a Roman Catholic priest. He would, he, he would confess his sins by the hour, he would go back trying to remember every sin he ever committed until he, he absolutely collapsed of fatigue and fell asleep. And as soon as he woke up, he realized he wasn't forgiven because he had forgotten something else. And then as he was doing his study, one day God opened the word of God in Romans and he read that the just shall live by faith. And he understood. He understood that we're justified not by what we do, but we're justified by what Christ did and our faith in what Christ did for us. Flip over to Hebrews chapter 9. How do you get a clear conscience? Hey, Lou, did you flash me five yet? Okay, that's really good. You guys still with me? Are you really? This is called theology. This is called doctrine. I don't usually listen to the national public radio. 
I'm just being honest with you. But somebody borrowed my car, and when I got in, it was on national public radio. And so as I get in the car and I turn it on and I'm driving, this guy says, in just a moment, an upcoming interview with an evangelical pastor who has been rejected by his church. I thought, I'm going to listen to this. So I waited a minute, and here comes this guy, and he says, yeah, I've been rejected by my church because I believe there are new methods and there are new truths emerging, but so many people in my church just want doctrine. And I thought, you're an idiot, in my loving way, of course. Oh, they just want doctrine, huh? And you got a problem with that? Jesus said, if you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. But he was kind of sarcastic about that. Hebrews 9.11, you want a clear conscience? Here's how you get a clear conscience. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, you ever seen someone do a uh, model of the tabernacle? Have you ever seen the temple? And they had a place called the Holy of Holies. And you couldn't go in there. It's where, the, it's where God dwelt. One guy could go in there once a year. And when he'd go in there to sacrifice, he always had, his, he had something in his hands. And he had a rope tied around his ankle. You guys ever read the book of Leviticus at five in the morning? Boy, that's, that'll just energize you, won't it? It's kind of hard. That's, that's tough sledding reading through Leviticus at five in the morning. Unless you were a Levitical priest and you wanted to sacrifice to God and live. You had, none of those Levitical priests had ADD when they were reading uh, except Nadab and Abihu. Weren't those Aaron's boys? Yeah. They offered strange fire. They didn't do what God said. So they had a rope around the high priest's ankle so that if he died in the presence of God, they could pull him out because there was no paramedic going in there to get him. When Jesus appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves. Jesus didn't walk in with an animal in his hands. You know why? Because he was the sacrifice. His hands were empty. John said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's Jesus. Not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of the heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, watch this, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? You know how you get a, 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 you know how you get a, a clear conscience? By looking at the sacrifice of Jesus Christ when he went to the cross for you. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? When you understand, when you understand, when you understand, here's a, here's a word that cost me 30,000 bucks to go to seminary to learn this word, and it was worth every dime. Propitiation. Propitiation is satisfaction. Because God's a righteous God, there's anger, there's wrath, but that wrath was not poured out on me, it was poured out on Jesus. It's amazing what he did for me. How, how, do I find, how do I find a clear conscience? By looking at what Jesus did, and Jesus, Jesus paid for every sin. Now, at times, because he's paid for my sin, and I know that I'm forgiven, but there are times his spirit will lead me because I've wronged somebody or I've hurt somebody, he will lead me to go talk to that person. And go reconcile. 
or if I've taken something, I, I need to go talk to that person and confess it, and I need to make restitution. But I'm not making restitution to be forgiven. I'm making restitution because I am forgiven. That's how you have a clear conscience. That's good stuff, that clear conscience. You can sleep at night. I got to do number four. I just have to do it because it's on my page. Number four. Faithful men are men of focused prayer. So what's the confidence? Faithful men. The things you've seen in me, things you've heard from me, and trust these to faithful men who may in turn teach others also. Okay? There's the principle. From one guy to the next to the next to the next. Well, faithful men are men of focused prayer. If you go back to 2 Timothy 3, he says, I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience the way my forefathers did. Watch this. As I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day. There's some people. You ever talk to someone and they tell you about a situation you say, oh, I'll pray for you. You know what? Be very careful about saying that. I used to say that. And I, every time I'd say, shoot, why do they say that? Because unless I write it down, I'm not going to pray for it. I might remember once or twice. But you know what's better to say? Hey, I'll pray for you as the Lord brings you to mind. That's a lot better, isn't it? That's a lot more real. But I'm going to tell you something. I got certain people I pray for constantly. And you do too. I pray for my wife every day. I pray for my kids every day. And I pray at times. You know what's great? Is to take scripture and pray scripture for them. Um, your kids are struggling, they're ever struggling, and they'll struggle. You say, yeah, but I've taught them the truth. Well, they've got to work it out for themselves. So they're going to struggle, and they're going to have something called doubts, and they've got to work it out, and that's good because it's how they embrace it for their own. My kids struggle through doubts and all that stuff. I would pray Ephesians. Um, I remember praying Ephesians 1.17. I remember praying this for one of my kids in particular. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him because they weren't sure about him. And I'd pray that every day. I'd just say, Lord, give them, give them, give them that spirit of wisdom and revelation about Christ. Show it to them. In their heart of hearts, show it to them. What did Paul say? He says, I'm, I'm, I'm constantly praying. Now, now, guys, I don't want to put a guilt trip on you. But I'm going to tell you something. The ones that are near and dear to you, that you're influencing and are looking to you, you constantly pray for them. You say, well, yeah, but Steve, they're not interested. You constantly pray for them. You just keep praying. I raised them right, but they're so far away. You just keep praying. You just keep praying. I remember my grandmother died, maternal great-grandmother died about 101 and I remember her mother dying when I was just a little boy. And they tell me that I, re, that my mom tells me about the time we'd been at church. And our pastor talked about Jesus raising a boy who was dead. And we went home for Sunday lunch and I walked in to my great grandmother's bed. And my mother tells me that I said, did up, did up. I meant get up, but I couldn't say a G. I said did up, did up, and she wouldn't get up, so I hit her in the chest. I was a very sensitive child. <laughs> and here she is in her late 90s, but I got in the church and I Jesus could raise, why can't Jesus raise her? That's my memory of her. It was just a little lady just shriveled up dying. She had 13 children. As I recall, um, as I recall, I may have this wrong, but I, I hadn't planned on saying this tonight. As I recall, there were eight boys and five girls. Two of the boys died in the flu epidemic of 1918. She prayed every day for her children because when, when she was in her 90s, all of her sons had no interest in Christ. No interest. They were truck drivers, every single one of them. They were tough, 
They were fighters. They'd, they'd, they'd fight you as soon as look at you. They had no interest in Christ or in the things of Christ. But she prayed. She constantly prayed and died. Never saw him come. You know what's interesting? Shortly after she died, one of those boys, about 69 years old, comes to Christ. I mean, he didn't come halfway. I mean, sucker came. Kind of obnoxious for Christ. Because <laughs> he'd wasted so many years. Oh, you know what? Then his brother comes. Oh, and then another brother comes. And you know what? Every single one of them came. And she never saw him on this earth. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. You pray as you're faithful. You pray for them. The ones God puts, you pray for them. And you don't stop until you're dying breath. And you trust God to bring him in his way, in his time, so that they can become faithful men and entrust the things which they have seen and heard to other faithful men. That's my job. That's your job. And if you got girls, that's your job. Let's pray. Thank you, Father. We, we need to be reminded of your grace and of your mercy and of the fact that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We, we want a clear conscience. And Lord, we're not going to do it on our own because we find that sin still dwells within us. But Lord, we want to be faithful men that when we sin, we immediately deal with it and confess it to you. And if it's something that involves our, our wife or one of our kids, that, that we immediately make amends and talk to them. That's what faithful men do. One day we're all going to be gone. And if you don't return, they're going to be carrying the torch. We want to leave a model for them that they can emulate that will point them to you. In spite of our weaknesses, in spite of our failures, in spite of the fact that we are beset with weaknesses, we want to be faithful men by your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.